Please be seated. If you have your Bibles, please open them up to Philippians chapter 4. If you're using the Blue Pew Bibles, that's on page 982. I'll be picking up in verse 10 in just a moment. But before we turn to God's Word, let us ask for His help once again. But Father, we can often come here on Sunday mornings and even though we want to learn, we want to know you, we want to grow, we're sometimes slow to hear. Sometimes a little more hard-hearted than we'd like, a little more distracted by all of the things of life going on around us. And so, Lord, we ask for your help this morning that you would let me be clear, that you would let our hearts be ready, and that above all else, that we would see Christ magnified, and that we would love him more. So we ask for, again, your spirit to be at work in us today. Amen. Amen. Well, Philippians chapter 4, beginning in verse 10, says the word of our Lord. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. This is God's holy, inspired, sufficient word. Thanks be to God for it. Well, I don't know if you've ever wanted to write a best-selling Christian sports movie, but if you did, let me go ahead and give you a surefire plot. You take a below-average team, struggling to win games, can't get out of their own way, much maybe like the Spartans. You take a beleaguered coach who can't quite figure out what to do with this team, and this coach has a newfound inspiration of faith, begins to share that faith with the team, starts a team Bible study. The team puts their faith in Christ, and lo and behold, they discover this verse. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That team then goes on out to beat their rival in the game of the year. That's a great movie. That movie's probably already been made. And you chuckle and think you see why it doesn't quite work that way. But why not, right? Most people come to this verse and think, well, isn't it just saying that if I put my faith in Jesus, if I believe hard enough, either in myself or in him, that, well, I can do great things. Isn't that what Paul's saying? Well, I think despite what many pro-athletes' tattoos assume, Paul 
is not saying that Jesus is just a pair of PF flyers that makes you run faster and jump higher. What Paul is saying is that the contentment that comes from possessing Christ far outweighs the discontentment that comes from worrying about your worldly possessions. That is his main point in this passage and the main point of verse 13. The contentment from Christ far outweighs any discontentment that we might face in this world. That if you have Jesus, you have everything. That's Paul's main point. Now, now before I, I lay out my case for why I think that's his main point, uh, I want to spend time describing and explaining Paul's own description of what's going on in these verses. Because many people come to this passage and, and it's hard to make sense of what Paul's saying. In some ways, he's thanking the Philippians for their gift, but people read this and think it's almost a backhanded compliment. They're somewhat perplexed by the way Paul goes about describing their relationship. Is he being sarcastic? Is he saying, hey, thanks, but no thanks? No, that, those descriptions couldn't be farther from the truth. Paul is expressing the, the, the deepest, most grateful sense of thanksgiving to his dear friend. So let's first reflect on that expression of thanks. And again, we see it in verse 10. He says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned, but you had no opportunity. So, so what is happening here? If Paul's not giving them sort of a backhanded compliment, what's he saying? Again, remember, these are our dear friends. They've been longtime partners, and maybe even the very first partners of Paul in his missionary activity. They provided for his needs many times already in the past. This is what Paul means when he says that they've revived their concern for him. That, that concern, they're, they're showing their love and concern for him for providing for his needs. They love their brother, that they see that he is in need. And so, again, they're expressing their love and their concern through provision. And so, once again, as they have sent this gift to provide for him, he's telling them, thank you. And he's rejoicing that they've revived their concern. This revival is a botanical term. It's what you usually would use to describe perennials that go dormant in the winter and then in the spring come up back to life in full bloom. See, their concern expressed through their giving is back in full bloom as Paul finds himself in need once again. But this is where we have to recognize that Paul's own description of their relationship. He's not saying that their concern is revived because they've stopped caring about him. He said, where have you guys been this whole time? No, he's 
He's glad. It's revived because in the past they've had no opportunity to express their concern. There's been no way for them to show their love because Paul hasn't had any need. And now that he does, now that he is in prison and is in need of provision, they have another opportunity to express that. So their love for him has not gone away and then come back. It's just that their love for him has had no opportunity, no outlet to be expressed until now. That's what he means by their revision, the the revival of their concern. And then as Paul's expressing this rejoicing, this thanksgiving, he begins an aside in verse 11. And once again, as he's done so much throughout this letter, he is interspersing pastoral teaching into his expressions of gratitude. He's saying, oh, thank you for meeting my needs. And then, oh, by the way, let me give you some instruction on how I actually perceive what my needs are as someone who is secure in Christ. See, on the one hand, the Philippians have lovingly met his his real physical needs. And on the other hand, Paul says, I've also learned how to be content even if my needs are never met. And again, he's not saying, hey, thanks, but your gift was pointless. He's saying, thanks, but let me also give you an example to follow for how to deal with hardship in this life. So, so that is how Paul is describing the situation. That's the, the flow of this text. He, he's not insulting them. He, he's not upset with them. He is expressing profound gratitude. And in the midst of that expression is offering some pastoral counsel on contentment. And so we must ask then, what is Paul's secret to contentment? How does he find himself able to deal with such hardships? Again, he says, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So again, If it's just not clear yet, Paul is not saying that believing in Jesus has given him supernatural powers. The the doing all things that he says in verse 13 is simply a restatement of the learning to be content that he said in verse 11. And so again, we must ask, what is the secret to Paul's contentment? It's Christ, plain and simple. It's his peace. It is his strength. It is his presence. It is his provision. It's all of his promises to Paul. It's all that he has in knowing Jesus. That is his secret. Pure and simple. The secret to contentment is Christ. And maybe you're here, and that sounds a bit trite, sounds a bit formulaic. Oh yeah, just believe in Jesus and everything will be better. He'll, he'll get you through it. 
But to me, that sounds wonderfully like the Apostle Paul. Again, you have to just understand and realize how much he values his Savior. What exactly Jesus means to him. Remember earlier in the letter, he he told us his entire life is about living like Christ, about knowing him. Even in his death, that is gain because he gets to go and be with Christ. Jesus is what the Apostle Paul wants the most, more than anything else in this life. Jesus is his treasure. And so it is no wonder that even in the most difficult of circumstances, in prison with no provision, no food, no clothing, no hope of being let free. He doesn't know if he's going to live or die in this jail cell. And in the midst of all of that, he says, I have exactly what I need to be content. He has Jesus. It's not a trite saying. That is our only hope in this life. Remembering what we have in Christ is our greatest need, even in the midst of our deepest despairs. Think of the last time you were anxious about life. Whether it was your finances, the outcome of a job interview, the grades you were going to get on the next exam, or just how the future is going to unfold, what's going to happen, where you're going to move, who you're going to marry. In those moments of anxiety, what got you through them? How did you make it through the other side? Maybe you're still going through them right now. What are you doing to comfort yourself? It's possible that we trust in our own skill, our own circumstances. Or did we find our peace in Jesus? I think on the one hand, we can think about all of our marketable skills, all of our various safety nets, all of the paths forward that we can figure it out, the financial tools at our disposal, all of the studying plans that we can find. Or we can say, you know, maybe I'll make it through as long as X, Y, and Z doesn't happen. Then I'll be okay. Now, I am all for careful life planning, all for saving, all for figuring out the best, most responsible, and wisest path through life. But if your head hits the pillow at night and you can fall asleep because you have the right spreadsheets and pie charts, instead of going to bed clinging to the promises of God for your entire life, then you're finding your contentment in the wrong things. Yes, Paul made pleas for material provisions. He's not saying that being provided for is unholy. That's not his point. But he knew 
that even if the provision never came, if he was still hungry and cold on a prison floor, that he still had everything he needed. Do we have that type of confidence in Christ as well? Is he everything that we need in this life? Is he your treasure? Is he your greatest value? Or is he simply an insurance policy to make sure that you don't lose what you actually want the most? See, saying that Jesus is enough sounds trite. It's because we don't value him enough. But if he is our greatest treasure, if he is our greatest hope, if he is what we want the most, and we know that we cannot lose him, if we know all that we have in him, then he indeed will be enough. While we find contentment in Christ's presence and promises, we also find contentment in God's providential care. For we're also reminded that where we find ourselves in this life is precisely where he intends for us to be. And we often feel unrest and anxious in our lives because we think that God must have abandoned us, that our our circumstances aren't going to work out for our good. They're actually going to work out for our harm. That God has just left us alone and, and there is nothing that he can do for us. But even in the deepest despairs, in the hardest trials, even as we wait for deliverance, we must remember that the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. And even those severe mercies, as he takes away, that taking away is always for our good. We have to cling to promises like Hebrews 13, where the writer says, Be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. When we think about King David fleeing the palace from his own son who wants to murder him and take over the throne. On his way out of Jerusalem, what does he say? He says, Lord, would you do to me what seems good to you? To have that kind of confidence that the Lord knows what is best, that you want him to do what seems good to him, even if it doesn't seem best to you. Or even as David was driven from the palace and from Jerusalem to hide in the surrounding caves, he could still say in Psalm 3 that he laid down And he slept because the Lord was a shield around him. Complete trust and confidence that even as he lays down and is completely vulnerable, he can trust in God's promises that the Lord will be with him. Wherever you're at this morning, you are perfectly in God's providential care. Is there any place more suited for us to rest and find contentment for our souls than with him? I would argue there are not. We are exactly where we need to be 
to find the deepest contentment, even in the most trying of times. For God is at work, and he is working for our good. So God's provision, his promises, and his providence, they are your peace and your contentment in times of trial. It's also worth noting, though, that it is not just in the times of trial, in the times of want, that Paul says that we must look to Christ. Because again, what, what has he said? That he has learned contentment when plenty and goodness abound as well. I think this ought to remind us of the trap we just discussed of finding our contentment in our own circumstances and not in God. For again, we can have all of the worldly provisions we need. And if we're finding our contentment in them, even when there is plenty, we will not be satisfied. How often do we think to ourselves, if I just got the next thing, then I'd be happy. And then when we get that thing, we're just on to the next. I think, oh, if only I could have a spouse, then I'd be happy. Or once we have kids, then I'll be happy. Now, once those kids are out of the toddler stage, or once they're out of the house, then I'll finally be happy. If only I got the right job or the right raise. Once the semester is over, once I'm on vacation, once the next thing comes, then I'll be happy. That's what I finally need to be content. Here's the problem. When your contentment is based on your worldly circumstances, it will never be enough. Even when you have plenty you won't be satisfied unless you have learned to be content in Christ. This is not just a teaching for those in trial. It is a teaching for those who have everything they could ever want as well. So knowing that this is a church where there is generally more prosperity than pain, generally more ease than hardship, want to ask, then how do we fight for contentment when we have plenty? We already saw how we're to cling to Christ as our greatest treasure, and that doesn't change. You still cling to Christ as your greatest treasure, even when you have earthly treasures. But I think there's also additional steps that we need to take to guard ourselves against the temptation of looking at our possessions for our security, steps to take to fight against being taken captive by those possessions. First, it's helpful to remember that you need to recognize your dependence. No matter how talented you are, no matter how hard you've worked, no matter how much success you've already had, you need to remember that everything you have comes from the Lord. It's not ultimately our own doing. It is 
all from God's providential hand. And everything you have today comes from the Lord, but everything you hope to have tomorrow comes from him as well. If it's the Lord's doing for today and the Lord's doing for tomorrow, then we can rest in his care. But if it's our doing, if we accumulated everything based on our own effort, our own success, then we will be in a never-ending quest to protect our prosperity. A never-ending quest to guard our barns that they might not run empty. Peace in prosperity is found in our dependence and in our reliance upon Christ for our daily bread today and our daily bread tomorrow. Second, we're reminded that we also then don't worry about tomorrow. And how often have we robbed ourselves of the joys available to us today because we are worried about what tomorrow may bring. When we have everything that we could need today to be satisfied, to be content, all of our needs are met, and yet there's no rejoicing. There's no patient gladness in God's provision. There's only worrying that tomorrow all of that may be taken away. How often we had enough money, enough stability, enough family, enough health, whatever it is, you name it, only to be dissatisfied that, you know, tomorrow that might not be enough. We worry, what about inflation? What about what happens when my kids go off to college? And our family relationships, what will they be then? What about my family medical history and that diagnosis that I, I know is just right around the corner? What about all of the blessings that God has showered you with today? What about all of his care and all of his provision that you have today? Jesus tells us, tomorrow has enough trouble for its own. Don't be anxious about tomorrow. Sometimes we need to simply pause from all of our worry and see that all that we have, all that we've already been given, and pause and give God praise and rejoice in Him. Don't let the fear of tomorrow rob you of your joy today. Third, guard ourselves against not being content with what we have. We ought to invest our treasures in heaven. I'm going to deal with this concept in much greater detail next week. But, but again, it's helpful for us to see how these principles dovetail together. And we remember what Jesus taught us in the Sermon on the Mount. And he said, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also.
So if you have enough here on earth and you want to guard against this becoming your treasure, you want to guard against becoming discontent with what you have, Jesus tells you, take that treasure and store it in the kingdom. Put it to heavenly use. Think about the Philippians' own use of their possessions. What did they do with their earthly treasures? Presumably, Philippi is a very well-to-do city. So presumably, many of those in the Philippian church had quite a large amount of resources. And what do they do with that wealth? What do they do with it instead of sitting on it and building bigger barns? They sent it to Paul to meet his needs so that he can continue on in his gospel ministry, that he could continue to proclaim Christ to those around the world. Again, as we'll see next week, that partnership radically transforms God's people. As you give to kingdom causes, it, it, it shapes what you love the most. But what I want us to see this week is that as we give, it helps us to let go of our love for this world, to let go of our love for the things of this world, and it helps us to love Christ more. We learn the secret of contentment with plenty, the more generous we become with what we have. So I'll just say that if you're hearing this and you're thinking, okay, want to be more generous, Lord's stirring you up a little bit and you think, okay, what are ways to give? Let me just point you to the missions committee. They have dozens of good gospel ministries that they could point you to, to give, point you to our campus outreach team doing good gospel work on the campus. There are already in this church and places that we've already spent time vetting for you to give generously and to let go of the things that you love in this world. But we, as God's people, need to fight for contentment in Christ, letting go of our desire for the things of this earth, that they might not have the same hold on us tomorrow that they do today. Now, so far, I talked at great length about the personal dynamic of contentment in Christ, sort of the, the individual relationship with Christ, trusting him, holding fast to him, relying on his promises to be content in this life. But we also see that this passage has implications for how you are to come alongside of others who are going through hardships as well. Again, after all, this passage is about how the Philippians have met Paul's physical needs and his response to them and him highlighting the relationship that they have together. Again, like so much of this letter that we've already read, the things that are true for individuals have an impact on the life 
of the community. So then let us consider how we are to minister to one another, especially when someone is carrying a significant burden. When, when there is something that is threatening their earthly provision, how do we provide and care for one another? And again, this isn't just financial. This can be relational burdens on top of financial burdens. Could just be loneliness, could be sickness and health. Any number of things that are threatening people's contentment and is bringing about great anxiety. So how do we minister to people facing those types of burdens? Well, share my own tendency, and I dare say that many of us face this danger. So I'm preaching this just as much to myself as the rest of us. But when someone shares burden they're carrying, trial they're going through, how many of us, are, our first instinct is to jump to, okay, how do I fix this? How do I help you through this situation? What steps need to be taken for this burden to be removed? Dads, I'm curious how many of you have gotten this phone call. It's not always, but it's a somewhat recurring call. It's 4 p.m. on a workday, and it's your wife. And she's saying, when are you coming home? It's been a long day. Kids are crabby. I'm exhausted. You're about to be tagged in. Just curious, when's that going to be? Say, moms, just an aside, we love you. You are amazing. All of your sacrifices, the Lord sees you. He is well pleased with you. So we love you. Feel free to call your husbands often as you need. But when I'm a dad, husband, when I get that phone call, what is my first instinct? It's okay, honey, you know what? Yeah, I'll try to come home a little early. I'll get you some Starbucks on the way home. I'll get home. I'll make dinner. You just go have a bath, relax. You know, I've got a spare Kalamazoo candle for emergencies. Go light that. Just whatever you need to do, I got this. You just, let me get this burden off of you. Let me ask. Is that the right response? Is that the best way to love someone who is facing a trial? I see the fear in the eyes of a lot of you moms thinking, don't say it. Don't you say no. Okay, let me just provide some clarification. Seeking to remove the immediate burden of someone who is struggling is absolutely a way to love them and a way to be faithful to the biblical requirement for us living in Christian community. So on the one hand, yes, that is a good and right response to seek to remove the immediate burdens of someone who is suffering. However, the way to love and serve someone best is to point them to the promises of Christ in the midst of our physical service to them. So does that make sense? That if I only take care of my wife's physical needs without reminding her of all that she has in Christ, that Jesus will give her endurance for the task 
that he's called her to, that she's defined by who she is in Christ, not by how well the kids sit and listen during school. If, if, if I just give her a, you know, I got this, you, you go, without pointing her to Christ, I have not served her and loved her as best as I can. I have not given her what she needs most. And if I just give her a spiritual pat on the back and say, yeah, yeah, Jesus is with you, now when's dinner? Then I have not loved her and served her like Christ either. Paul shows us that his greatest need above all else is to hope in Christ. And that his second greatest need is to have his material needs provided for. God's people are meant to care for both. But again, so often we jump straight to, how do I meet the need? And we neglect what our real needs actually are. So as we're loving, as we're serving, as we're, we're lifting people up, Coming alongside of them, what we need to do as well is point them to the promises that they have in Christ. For that is the way to love them best. And let us continue to think about this connection between the physical and the spiritual for a few more moments. And Paul is subtly linking these two together here in this passage. But we see this connection all throughout scripture. In many other places, we see it even in the way we structure the church. Think about what is one of God's main charges against the people of Israel in the Old Testament? Well, it's their idolatry, but then right behind that is their lack of care for the poor, the orphan, and the widow. I don't think we are meant to minimize those connections. I think Pastor Neil's done with Acts for the year, so I get to steal some of his thunder. Acts 6, he's not getting there for another six months anyways. But think about when the widows are not properly being cared for. What, what happens? That they come to the apostles and they bring a complaint. But what do the apostles do? Well, they say, well, it's not right for us to give up the preaching of the word to serve tables. She says, the spiritual feeding of God's people is of utmost importance. But do they leave it at that and say, so don't bother us? No. They say, we're going to continue to preach the word, but then they appoint deacons to help assist in this provision for the widows. The spiritual feeding is important, but so is the physical feeding as well. There's an intrinsic link between the two. I mean, think the very reason that deacons exist in the church is to make sure that the physical needs of the body are being met so that people can come and worship unhindered and unencumbered as the elders minister the word to God's people. Right? It's to be able to help people so that they're not having to come and worship God and just think, I'm just being neglected by my brothers and my sisters. I'm not being cared for. The deacons are meant to provide that care so that you can come and enjoy worship with God's people. And so as we seek to help one another and to minister to one another, 
we must remember that we ought to minister to one another's physical needs. Those must be met within the body. But even more so, we have to minister to people's spiritual needs as well. The, the former is always a greater need than the latter, and yet we do not neglect either. And let me make one last point before we close. No doubt there are many of you here this morning who you're hurting. You're facing many trials, carrying immense burdens. Let me implore you, you do not need to suffer alone. There is an incredibly fierce independent streak that runs throughout the American church. Probably runs throughout Americans and even as we get into the church. But we very often treat our, our personal struggles, our own personal burdens as some shameful thing that we need to keep bottled up to ourselves, that, that nobody else has to know what we're going through, that we don't need to let anybody else in. There's, there's a number of, of reasons for this. Maybe we, we don't want to look weak. Maybe we don't want to burden others with our own problems. Maybe we're going to be afraid how others are going to view us. And that, so there's shame mixed with that. We're worried that if we share what we're going through, that's going to somehow affect our relationships with one another. But whatever it is, many of us, probably most of us, are incredibly slow to share the needs that we have with one another. That's you this morning, especially if you are going through something right now and there's nobody else knows. Let me humbly but pastorally challenge you. When you bear those burdens alone, you are actually diminishing opportunities for worship. What do I mean by that? What does Paul say about the gift that he's received from the Philippians? He, he rejoices when he receives it. He, he's, he's worshiping God. He's praising God for his work through the Philippians for his needs. He's worshiping because he's thinking of the kindness of his friends. That's Paul's response to this gift. Think about the Philippians in this transaction. Later on in chapter 4, Paul describes their giving as a fragrant offering. That's worship language. It's bringing an offering before the altar to be a sacrifice pleasing to God. If you feel the need to suffer silently, not only are you languishing in that suffering and not having opportunities for yourself to rejoice as it's removed, you're also denying the body the opportunity to use their gifts, their treasures, their talents, their time to glorify God as well. When we suffer silently, we diminish worship in the church. 
I literally have people knocking on my office door, calling me, saying, Pastor, I'd love to serve. I want to be involved. I want things to do. And just looking for outlets to bless God's people. So brothers and sisters, let me again encourage you, do not miss the opportunity to share your needs with your church family, family that loves you, that wants to represent Christ to you, that wants to glorify and honor God in the way they live their lives and serve God's people. There is a whole lot of worship in store for you and in store for the church when we allow others in on our troubles. And again, if you're here, that's you, and you think, okay, how do I do that? I don't know how to tell people. Who do I talk to? Again, that's why we have elders who, who are meant to, to shepherd the flock. That's why we have deacons who are meant to care for the needs of God's people. You come find one of your elders or one of your deacons, and, and we'll help find the help that you need. Or if you think, yeah, I'm, I'm too scary to talk to, again, back of your bulletin. The deacons have an email address. You can send them a message. Or just, you can go to our website. There's a members box on the top of the website. You click that, sign in. You can fill out a form to send to the deacons. I think I sound like an infomercial right now, but I want to make it absolutely clear that your church, your, your family is here to love you and to serve you. I want to make it as easy as possible for you if you are suffering for your church to do its job, to come alongside of you right now and increase your worship. This is what being partners in the gospel means. It's what it means to be the family of God. That we are people who are saved by grace, united to one another that gladly lays down our comforts for one another. And I've said it before, say it again here, there is no other institution in the world that can love like the church. That's because there is no other institution in the world that has the secret of contentment, that has the same security, that has the same promises as the church. So let us all learn together to be content in Christ. And as we are content in him, let us learn to love each other as Christ loved us. Let us pray. Oh Lord, there are great promises for us in Jesus. Oh, and if we simply laid hold of half of them, we would be the happiest people in the world. So would you please help us? Remind us of, of what we have in Jesus. Do not let our hearts grow dull to the treasure that is ours in Christ. And Lord, when trials come, when anxiety sets in, let us cling to him and learn the secret of contentment. And as we live together as a body, let us learn to love, to serve, that we might hold out Christ 
to one another as well. And we thank you for all that you've done and all that you will do through your sons. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.